You know, I really like times like this um, I, because it tells you who people really are. Uh, I don't care how people really perform when times are good. I want to see what they do when times are bad because that really tells me who they are. People rise and people fall under pressure. And this is the exact time to sort it out. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. So today on the Neurosurgery Podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Sean Grady. I've known Sean Grady sort of peripherally for, for over 20 years. I first met him when I was a sub-intern in Seattle. He was there in the era of uh, Dick Wynn. And that program, I think, has created more chairmen in the modern era than uh, any other center except maybe UVA. And then guys like Mitch Berger, Mark Mayberg, Rich Ellenbogen were all Sean's contemporaries. Sean then went on to be the chair at University of Pennsylvania, the oldest medical school in this country or this hemisphere. And uh, he's, he's really been a, a storied individual in neurosurgery in the halls of academic neurosurgery. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. So today we wanted to talk about leadership. And, and I've, I kind of got inspired when I came to visit you at UPenn a couple of years back when you were telling me about leadership. And, and I don't consider myself to be knowledgeable at all in this field. And just to be clear, I mean, you're a chairman, but I think Every neurosurgeon is a leader in some way, whether you're a leader of a private group or a hospital uh, committee, or even just in your OR for four hours, you're the leader of that setting. So I think it's a, it's a very important concept to get your head around in terms of leadership. Can, can you give us some concept of how you see leadership in neurosurgery? Sure, Mike. Um, first of all, leadership is, uh, some people are natural leaders. I am not. Uh, it's a learned skill. And, and um, businesses in the United States spend a lot of time, and they've been doing this for decades, about how they train their leaders. Um, I actually discovered this back in 2008, when at the time of the Great Recession, uh, when all the chairs at Penn were uh, required to attend um, about, I guess, uh, over a one-year interval, uh, uh, a, uh, a course at Wharton which was like a, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, spread out over the four quarters. So there's a lot of stuff about spreadsheets and things like that. Um, but what really intrigued me was the, the amount of energy and time businesses uh, put into thinking about leaders and leadership development and the skill sets and the, the human behavior, the psychology. And I realized I knew nothing about that, or I, I just was winging it. Um, and that's really what got me thinking uh, and uh, actually uh, learning more about leadership and how you can do it. Well, Dr. Grady, um, for our listeners and both for them and myself as someone early in my career, could you expand a bit on how exactly you learned the leadership traits that you're employing today? Um, well, it's a combination of both uh, books and coursework and uh, things like that and observation, too. So. Uh, John Jane uh, was uh, the chair at the University of Virginia when I was a resident. 
he was a natural leader. I could never figure out what he did. He had he had an innate sense of human behavior and how to, I don't want to use, the manipulate's not quite the right word, but how to get the best out of people. He just did it off the top of his head and I never could figure it out. But then I realized when I had learned more from Wharton and then I actually took a one week course at Notre Dame, um, what was going on there. Um, and it's understanding how other people are thinking and then uh, getting the best out of them uh, because you are um, modifying your behavior, uh, your questions, your, the way you approach things to fit them best. Um, so uh, that was fascinating. Uh, and I'm, I remain a student today. That's a very interesting point, thinking about observing the leaders around you, particularly Dr. Jane, but I'm sure people in all walks of life and throughout the hospital uh, during your days at work. So in that observation, both of others and now of yourself as you continue to learn, what different leadership styles have you seen that have worked or not worked? And maybe what aspects of those have you tried to incorporate in your own practices? Yeah, so uh, you can really get a glimpse of that right now in this pandemic crisis about leadership <laughs> without uh, getting into too many weeds. Right. Uh, President Trump has one approach. Uh, Tony Fauci has another approach. And you got to figure out which approach fits your personality the best. Some people naturally want to have a very dominating type of approach that may or may not work depending on the situation and the people you're leading. Um, there's a lot of ways that people ascend uh, in the ranks to become leaders. Um, there was a guy by the name of Chainsaw Al Dunlop who used to who was promoted as a, a terrific leader in taking companies that were in serious financial trouble and turning them around. Of course, his nickname was Chainsaw because he cut so many people down. Uh, that's not something I'd want to do. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one approach. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because I think when we talk about leaders, leadership, and authority, they're really different things, right? In other words, the person who is really exhibiting leadership skills may not be the person in in the leadership role, right? And and so I guess maybe to unwrap that a bit, Sean, like when I, I remember when I was a sub, I remember coming to your house. What, it was it was a, it was one of those bridges you had to go to cross in Seattle. It's all bridges, I guess. And I went to your house and I, I met your family, your beautiful family. It was like the Von Trapp family, and it was like this guy is like he is he is the quintessential leader. I, I really thought that you looked like the CEO of Coca Cola or Boeing or something like that, and and you had all the trappings of that. And then I turn around and I look at some other guys, and I won't name any neurosurgeons, <laughs> and they don't really look like a leader but they have tremendous skill sets, right? So I guess you, we're all born with, with a certain set of abilities. How would you tell the young people listening who, who want to develop leadership skills? You know, do you, do you draw within your own personality? Do you, do you go to a course? Do you get feedback from people? What's the method by which you can cultivate that? Yeah. Um, well, to start off with, uh, as you mentioned right at the outset, uh, there's a lot of opportunities to... Uh, I would call experiment with leadership styles, um, whether in the OR, uh, running a lab, uh, having a, a, being chief of a division. Um, so it doesn't have to be um, becoming chair of a department or something like that. Um, 
And, and to tell you the truth, uh, after you've learned some of the aspects of leadership and you're trying to get a group to do something, uh, you can actually do, I call them thought experiments. All right, I've got a group of six people. I need them to do this activity well. Who am I working with? What are they going to respond to? And once I sort that out, I then say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And I, in terms of, of how I work with that group. And I'm going to then see, does it work out? Do I get the response? Do I get the behavior? Do I get the result that I'm looking for? And if it's not, I say, what went wrong there? Did I think about something, the problem incorrectly? Did I not uh, understand who that person is and what drives them? And then modify the behavior from there. So you can do these experiments. I, I do these experiments all the time. I actually, when I meet with the chief residents at the beginning of the year, I go through this and, uh, and I encourage them to do uh, experiments and see what works and see what they also, they, you also have to be comfortable doing this. I mean, as a person. So when you fail and you're going to fail, uh, you're able to uh, analyze that failure uh, and, uh, and change your approach. Now, it's very interesting to think about, as, uh, as we said at the onset of this conversation, that the neurosurgeon is by definition a leader, be it in the operative room, uh, be it in the hospital at large. And so in your role as a chairman and a, a senior neurosurgeon in your institution, you are de facto a leader of leaders. But more interesting, I'd like to explore what your interaction with patients has been like since your education, observation, and training in leadership in the recent past. Um, something I often say to medical students and my co-residents is that one of the fundamental skills of any physician is getting people to do what you want them to do. You know, take this medication, avoid this dangerous activity, et cetera. So has your continuing education and leadership in any way improved or elevated your clinical practice and your interaction with patients? Yeah, actually, um, there's a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, which is a terrific read about leadership. And it talks about a set of principles uh, to follow uh, to achieve a certain goal. But the foundational principle is trust. And of course, that is absolutely essential to develop a trust relationship with the patient. And we don't have much time to do it. I mean, we don't have a month, three months, something like that many times. It's a, it's a relatively fast conversation. So the first thing is, you know, how do you develop trust in a very short interval? Well, one way, one way to do that is to show confidence. You don't fumble uh, with your computer or your images or something like that. The second is to um, have a sense that, uh, get the patient to develop a sense that you're a human being too, that you have all the same thoughts that they do. I mean, obviously you're, you're, you're dealing in a situation where they have the disease and you do not. Uh, but that, you know, it's a sunny day. How you doing? Um, I'm here to help you uh, to, because, so that they begin to trust you. That trust relationship is just as important, is, uh, is identical to team development. If the team does not trust you and each other, you will never get uh, anything accomplished. Hmm. So whether it's an individual patient or the team, that trust is essential. 
So, Sean, you know, it's it's interesting you brought it up already about the um, COVID-19 pandemic, and we have a series on that on this podcast. I kind of feel like this is uh, the biggest problem that leaders have faced since maybe the managed care debacle in the 1990s uh, that really, really upset the apple cart for a lot of situations. What are you seeing now out there? Because to me, I mean, I'm witnessing here at University of Miami, really tremendous um, stress uh, leverage stress on all the leadership, right? That that nobody knows how to make a decision. Everybody's afraid to make the decisions. There's massive consequences economically and otherwise. What what do you think is coming out of this pandemic? You think we're going to see a new generation of leaders? You think people are going to refine their skills? What's happening at UPenn? So it, it, this is an incredible time uh, for leadership. Um, it happens once in a generation, maybe. And the kind of leadership that you uh, and the, the, the approach you use now is very different uh, than four months ago. Uh, and the reason it's different is exactly as you identified the uncertainty. People hate uncertainty, uh, just like our patients don't like uncertainty. Now, that doesn't mean that a leader has all the answers. We don't. We get to about 80% confidence that we're making the right decision, and then we make it. Uh, and unlike, well, I'm going to use the president again, you can't just cast stuff out there. Uh, you have to say, here's what I think is going on. Here's why I believe this. Um, there are things I don't know, but this is the path we're going to take. So in a sense, it is, a, it is more of a, um, a battlefield approach uh, where the captain of the unit says, we are going to take that hill, and here's how we're going to do it, knowing that there is a probability that some people are going to die. Um, so I've, been fa- I've always been fascinated by military leadership because it, it, it operates in a different um, uh, approach uh, that when something must happen in a short time frame with serious consequences for individuals, um, you know, how do you get that group of individuals to follow the lead. So leadership in a crisis is a very different uh, approach than it is in a normal situation and takes a different skills, uh, a, a, a very uh, different set of skills, um, personal confidence. You cannot show uh, insecurity. Uh, you have to recognize that you are going to make errors uh, and you're going to have to be able to correct those errors. You can't be rigid. Um, but you cannot show uncertainty in a time like this. Uh, yeah. People can sense that immediately. And just to follow up on that excellent point, John, you know, I'm always telling the residents that almost the definition of, of surgeons is that we have to make real decisions with real consequences in the absence of complete information all the time. And in that regard, I feel almost like neurosurgeons are ideally prepared because we're constantly making, I mean, honestly, life and death decisions in the absence of information and having to have confidence. And And I love that you talk about this as an opportunity because I think that too much of what's happening to the young people, maybe even not the young people, maybe everybody out there is this almost fear mongering, like the, the world is destroyed and yeah, it will never be the same. But they, they always say, right, the Chinese character, the, the, the written character for 
chaos is the same as for opportunity. And I don't mean to be opportunistic in saying this. I'm just saying that I think for the right people, this is a, this is a chance to make substantive changes that are going to be for the betterment of everyone. It sounds like that's what you're doing at UPenn. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So one example is telehealth, which everybody's using now because patients can't come in or don't want to come in and so forth. You know, I've turned around with the faculty and said, we are never going back. I expect at least half of your patient appointments to be telehealth. We are never going back. And I believe that. We will never go back. Uh, for At least for neurosurgeons, telehealth is so much more effective uh, than having people trundle down, you know, wait in line, parking hassles and so forth. That doesn't mean in-person appointments are going to go away. No, I actually want to meet somebody face-to-face before I operate on them. And uh, so, but for the standpoint of assessing problems, getting people's confidence, you can do that all very, very effectively through telehealth. And going back to your other point, in neurosurgery, you're absolutely right. We make decisions all the time without, without incomplete information and knowing those decisions are going to have consequences for people. So for us, a crisis like this is like uh, Tuesday. So, Dr. Grady, your military metaphor and the idea of battlefield decisions could not be more apt. Um, I think Dr. Wang and I would be remiss if in a conversation on leadership, we didn't mention someone we're both a big fan of. His name's Jocko Willink. He's a former Navy SEAL, um, highly decorated, and he now writes books about leadership. He has a leadership counseling uh, business where he's consulted by uh, various businesses across the country. And something he often talks about is the dichotomy of leadership, he calls it. Whether you should be leading from the front or from behind, whether you should be more aggressive or more passive in a given situation. And so thinking about that dichotomy approach to leadership in neurosurgery, every practicing neurosurgeon from chairman to assistant professors has at one point been an intern. And another military concept is that in order to give commands or give orders, you have to know how to take orders and follow them. So in your experience, in your career, the situations where you have been on the receiving end of leadership, where you have followed someone else and practiced the humility and the, um, the situation of being issued an order and executing it without question, what lessons have you gleaned from that throughout your career that you now incorporate into your position as a leader within the hospital and within your department? Well, you're absolutely right about knowing how to follow and knowing how to lead. It, it, it is, that is exactly correct. You know, I use those opportunities when I'm the follower to say, did that work? Was, there, uh, is that, was that an effective style of leadership or was it a, a flop? And I see that right now um, where I can, and I'm talking now within our health system, where some individuals when they give out these orders and say, here's what we're going to do and so forth, you go, oh yeah, that's absolutely the right thing to do. And the others, you know, flounder, they, you know, they, they, you can tell there's some indecision uh, and it makes it very difficult to follow. You get irritated and you're uncomfortable and you uh, bristle uh, saying, no, this is, we, we can't do that. That's the wrong thing to do. So, um, but you do have to know how to follow. There are times when you're going to have to follow, even though you think it's the wrong course of action. And so 
just to jump in there quickly, the presentation that a leader brings to the table may be as important as the actual content that you're bringing to the table. Yeah, both are important, content and presentation. You've got to be confident that they know what they're talking about and that they have the presence to state it, particularly in a crisis situation. You can be a little more uh, flexible in a non-crisis situation, but even in, a, even in circumstances where you're, you're, you're not in this kind of crisis pressure, um, it, you, the leader's got to, the, the follower's got to have a sense that the leader knows what they're talking about. Well, Sean, I've been following what you've been doing in Philadelphia for some time now, and you've really, I don't want to say completely reinvented, but you've definitely changed uh, UPenn neurosurgery uh, much for the better. It was a place that I think was sort of a little bit more in the margins, and now it is a, a true leader, and it is you know, best in class, if you will. And, and so my hat's off to you. I think that the, the product is as important as the message, right? That you've delivered this product to our country. And so it's, it's a wonderful thing to have you on the podcast. We definitely have to have you back again. Uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today. Very flattering. I appreciate it, Mike. Uh, I hope you guys are taking care and everything's well with you. Mm-hmm.